The Behind the Buy podcast features audio stories told by members of the Federal Acquisition Workforce who have successfully executed best practice IT contracting strategies from the TechFAR and Digital Services Playbook to help their agency meet its mission. Hi everyone, I'm Ann Rung, Administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. And today on the Administration's Behind the Buy audio series, we'll hear from Beth Hochberg. Beth is currently an Assistant General Counsel at the General Services Administration, and she and I worked together when I was at GSA. Her government career includes time at the Smithsonian Institution and the International Trade Commission, and she has experience in contracting, tech transfer, and intellectual property, so all things tech. At GSA, she serves as their Chief Intellectual Property Lawyer and focuses on all things IP, as well as social media, end-user license agreements, federal technology transfer, and mobile device applications. Beth is going to share with us her thoughts on all things technology, so welcome to Behind the Buy, Beth. Thank you so much, Anne. So what brought you to GSA? Well, first, allow me to thank you for the kind introduction and for the invitation to speak with you today. I am a career civil servant, and when the opportunity arose to broaden my expertise from the Smithsonian, which was largely in contracting law, and come over to GSA and, and get more into general law and enhance those general law skills, I thought, what better place to go? Uh, little did I know at the time just how broad GSA's mission was, how innovative the agency would become in the seven years I've been here, and how many parts of the government the agency touched. Were you doing contracting law at the Smithsonian? I was. They have an office of contracting there that's separate from the Office of General Counsel with about a dozen attorneys in there. And those attorneys specialize in contracting law, federal procurement, and have warrants, actually and lead the office. I can certainly understand the appeal of coming to GSA where it's one of the few agencies where it's core to the mission mm -hmm. doing contracting and they have such a huge portion of the overall federal market. So in your role at GSA you touch on many other areas um, other than just procurement and technology but tell me how you came to be interested in the in the cross-section between those two topics technology and procurement. I started out doing purely patents. I was at NIH doing technology licensing and at my law firm doing technology licensing. And then the opportunity arose to go to the Smithsonian. Who wouldn't want to go to mm -hmm. the Smithsonian? So I had clerkships from the International Trade Commission on patents. Mm -hmm. I had also had a clerkship at the Patent and Trademark Office doing patents. But now I thought, they don't really have a lot of patents at the Smithsonian, mm -hmm. but who doesn't want to buy a T-Rex, which <laughs> I did during my time there. Oh, how much? Don't tell us how much it costs. <laughs> I'm sure you. I'm, I'm sure, sure it's public, it's but you never know. Economical and efficient <laughs> procurement. And so when I went to the Smithsonian, I was granted the opportunity to learn a new skill set, and that was federal procurement. And my, the management over there, I just cannot give them enough kudos. They were so ethical, so thorough. Really, uh, were the best examples of contracting, and I saw that especially when I moved and started talking to other agencies, mm -hmm. what I've observed here, and I thought, wow, the training I received in mm -hmm. contracting there really set me up to go, to go anywhere. And so coming here then, um, oh, and while I was there, I happened to be the lone attorney who also knew technology and mm -hmm. um, technology agreements. And so I started reviewing end-user license agreements. And sometimes they were 100 pages long, as you mm -hmm. know. And I was being very, very, very studious um, entry or, or young attorney and going through and marking them up and fighting for every possible thing to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. Little did I know GSA was doing the exact same thing. 
that they had a team of attorneys over here doing that and that actually GSA was starting to make them government-wide. So let's transition a little bit to uh, the digital playbook. So we, yep. I want to talk to you about Play 7, which is about bringing in experienced teams. So yep. just to, to read a few sentences from Play 7 of the digital playbook, we need talented people working in government who have experience creating modern digital services. And this includes bringing in seasoned product managers, engineers, and designers. And when outside help is needed, our team should work with contracting officers who understand how to evaluate third-party technical competency so our teams can be paired with contractors who are good at both building and delivering effective digital services. And clearly, the legal team is an important component to, to this as well. So, um, you know, talk to me a little bit about your experience on creating and delivering digital services to federal agencies really focused on the team element. There certainly exists the need and the desire for contracting officers and other procurement professionals to get more training in intellectual property law and in the pitfalls that flow from an IP law into digital services. Or would services. you say technology in general? Yeah, technology in general yeah. too. So when I was at the Smithsonian, we actually had a separate provision in the warrants for the contracting officers that they had to get certified in intellectual property uh, provisions, what to look for in these contracts. And just seeing the contracting officers' eyes just you know, expand and think, wow, there's a whole world we didn't think of. Sometimes it is the IP provision or the technology or digital provision of a 100-page contract, that one paragraph that can rule the entire contract. I think you know you and I are in agreement with this point that we need sort of uh, a greater number of specialized mm -hmm. IT acquisition teams. We're, we're creating the first ever, first ever digital IT acquisition team um, to be launched next year and what you're talking about is a further specialty within that just on intellectual property. But how does the team does element yeah, build Well, you build need to have this. a CEO who's knowledgeable in this area, or at least knows how to ask the questions. You need to have program managers and program staff who have a solid working relationship with their CEO. And then the third component to that would be the lawyers. Mm -hmm. Often the lawyers, and even though I do love my profession, we often tend to be the ones to hold everything up. Mm -hmm. You do have a seasoned program manager who knows what they want to do and they are trying to find the best way to do it in, in, in an innovative way, and then their contracting officer is perhaps being creative, trying to help them find a novel solution, mm -hmm. a good and creative solution. Then they go to the lawyers, and the lawyers can often tend to hold things up, sometimes for the good, <laughs> sometimes because there is um, a lack of knowledge on, on, on their side. But do you, that's, that's an interesting point, do you feel like people are, are turning to the legal team too late in the process? So Absolutely. The way you explained it, it sounded almost sequential, like and then mm -hmm. they go to the lawyers. That's and exactly what happens. the point here, they should be bringing them in at the very beginning. A few years ago, I sat on a panel discussion with Hope O'Keefe at the Library of Congress, and we entitled our presentation, First Thing We Do is Friend All the Lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to say, you bring in, the, bring in legal early and often, yeah. because sometimes we may have a program team who's been, or a project team who's been working for a year, yeah. and they've never contacted legal. And had we been brought in at the very beginning, we would have been able to help focus or shift the path of the team to at least say, look, we want you to be innovative. We can give you nine out of 10 things. We, we just can't see a legal way to give you to item number 10. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about sort of the importance of having legal um, brought in as a member of the team. 
in the tech space in particular? There, of course, my focus would be it's so important to bring in legal to protect any of the agency's intellectual property rights. Uh, these tech agreements are run by very, very savvy companies with very, very smart lawyers and program teams. Mm -hmm. And they're going to want to keep whatever they can keep in terms of data rights mm -hmm. or any derivative works that might, be, that might flow. And the world of technology transfer at the federal labs, they know this, they know the game and they know the rules. And so all these tech companies, they know the game and they know the rules. But non-federal lab agencies mm -hmm. like GSA and many of our sister agencies, if you don't know that world and don't, don't know those rules, mm -hmm. you have a very well-intentioned contracting officer who may not realize that though the FAR provisions have a few different choices mm -hmm. of what provision to place into the contract, there can be severe monetary consequences and ownership consequences for the agency based on just whatever provision they choose or don't choose. And so that's why I do think it's really crucial to bring in the lawyers early on um, just so that everyone's on the same page as to what does the agency want. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think the agency should want far more rights than we are actually opting to maintain. And that's due to my training of being a patent lawyer, hoard and protect, hoard and protect, keep everything. Yeah. But I know that in the world of open source yeah. and in the new digital world, that may not be the agency's choice. But it's, so it's just good to have everyone on board from the very beginning knowing exactly what the end game is and then how to move, move backwards. And I assume the, the goal we're trying to achieve is to allow other agencies to benefit from the data, the ability to reuse that data, and when it makes sense, make it as open and transparent as possible to the public. Exactly. But the, the problem we run into is when an agency pays... We've, we've, we've paid for a contract. We have received some kind of deliverable that has data attached to it but we have not secured the rights for ourselves mm -hmm. or for government. And so then the vendor or the company turns around and sells that product to another federal agency. Yeah, so that's an, a, a great example of how and why you should bring in Correct. the attorneys at the front end. And I assume it results in a more efficient and effective procurement in the long run. Much faster in the end. So. Uh, data is such a huge issue. There's tons of end-user data mm -hmm. in the federal space. And how do you ensure you know, user privacy from both a legal and a technical point of view, given we're managing such a large amount of, of end-user data in the, federal, um, in, the, in the federal system? Well, that is really tricky because we want to protect the data. We want to protect the privacy that may be with that data. We have network integrity and security that's also at play with that data. Um, but how do we then try to make this all as public as possible? How do we aggregate data? At GSA, we often get data from many other agencies. And then we are told, make it available. Take it, mix it all up, put it in a better package so it's easy, more easily read or used, and spit it back out for the public to consume. The question is, is, do we have the rights for the data that's coming? If these agencies have been collecting this data, either via contract point or otherwise, for a few years, did they put in the provision that says it can be reused, mm -hmm. that they could give it to another agency? Uh, I would hope yes. Mm -hmm. I would hope they were that forward thinking. And so I certainly want to help my clients. I mean, data.gov is fantastic, right? They want to get as much data out as possible. How do you scrub the data? How do you make sure what's being put out doesn't contain PII? So it's really important, personally identifiable information. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to work with your privacy officer 
right. and your privacy team, along with all the data people. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So I think the greatest challenge for all of us is that technology is so rapidly changing, right? And it's, it's a challenge for all of us to kind of keep pace with mm -hmm. those changes. And perhaps more so in the area of mobile device application projects. And, you know, this is an area where you've got some experience and background. And so what do you think the future of this particular type of digital services is, is in the federal government space? And what opportunities for innovation does it open up for the government? I think that mobile apps are a really unique and special example of technology changing very, very rapidly. About five years ago, we, start, we at GSA started negotiating government-wide terms of service agreements with the big three providers at the time, you know, Apple, Google, and BlackBerry. Well, we wanted to make sure that whatever app an agency wanted to make well, on whatever platform, plus we didn't want to be anti-competitive. So if an agency is going to put out an, Apple, uh, put out an Apple app, they also need to be putting out an Android app. And in the beginning, it was very cumbersome and very expensive. Mm -hmm. Most of these apps we were contracting out, agencies were contracting out, and spending upwards of $50,000. Wow. Um, nowadays, because we have challenge.gov mm -hmm. and we have the America Competes Act, I have now seen the prices for those apps drop to about $5,000. And this is in the span of three or four years. And so we have here at GSA, well, the, the Office of Citizen Services and Innovative Technologies. And within them, we have the mobile.gov team. And so the, my colleagues here and my clients, they started realizing, hey, we need to be, get a community, a, a government-wide community of practice started. We don't need everyone to reinvent the wheel, and people need to talk to one another because yeah. this is a new area. The lawyers need help. Right. The program teams need help. And so I have to hand it to Jacob Parcell and other members of, of uh, the, the mobile.gov team. They built that community of practice, and they really saved the government a lot of money. Jacob works for? He works for OXIT, for okay. OCSIT. Within GSA? Yes. And they really got everyone talking to one another. They got the lawyers and the program teams talking to one another. And when that happened, prices started dropping yeah. because we had lessons learned from one another. But then, nowadays, because we can run, and challenge.gov is also run out of that same office yeah. of, uh, of OXIT. And so once agencies could essentially bid out, <laughs> if you mm -hmm. will, do a prize competition for their mobile apps, the prices just, just plummeted. Um, like I said, around $5,000 nowadays for a, a prize. But we have so many extra concerns um, on the federal side with mobile apps that I never would have considered. We worked with our EEO office, we worked with the, all the plain language specialists, and we realized, you know, a federal mobile app needs to be responsive, mm -hmm. it needs to be 508 compliant. Yeah. Um, there are so many additional laws that apply to a federal app that don't apply to an app out in the regular yeah. we sector. Have, we have certain obligations as, as the federal government that, that we need to meet. And I learned from colleagues over at HHS, that especially in the healthcare realm, for many lower served populations who may not have access to a desktop mm -hmm. computer, they can access federal information. Their first point of entry, that's the term I learned, their first point of entry is via a mobile phone. And so very quickly we needed for the UX or the user experience side of developing these apps, we needed to make sure that they were easily loadable, did not have high levels of graphics yeah. or anything that would um, slow down the download time so that these populations that needed to be served 
could access the government information easily from a, a lower end mobile device. I think the broader message is the importance of collaboration and sharing in the yes. procurement space, and particularly in the technology space, yes. because in the end it is more economic for all of us and efficient. So thank you, Beth, for sharing your insights today. Behind the Buy welcomes innovation and collaboration from both industry and government to highlight best practices in federal IT procurement. And we want to hear about your experiences to increase the awareness and adoption of proven techniques. Share your experiences and learn from your peers by visiting buyersclub.ideascale.com and clicking TechFAR Hub Use Cases. Access curated expertise, prices paid data, and contract vehicles for categorized goods and services by visiting the acquisition gateway at hallways.cap.gsa.gov. As always, thanks for tuning in and listen for us next time where we'll continue to take you behind the vibe.